Welcome to this BMJ podcast. Today we are going to find out about pharmacotherapy for weight loss uh, based on a therapeutics article just published in the BMJ. I'm joined by one of the authors, Dr. Raj Padwal, who's an Associate Professor of Medicine at the University of Alberta. Uh, Thanks for joining us today, Raj. Oh, my pleasure. When people talk about pharmacotherapy for weight loss, um, you know, there are negative connotations. So could you just take us through the history of drugs for obesity? Sure. So I think that that connotation should, until we have a very proven effective medication, and when I say proven, I mean proven to reduce cardiovascular morbidity, mortality endpoints, I think everyone should keep that connotation in mind um, because we still don't have those kinds of data. And to say that the field has had a checkered past is no exaggeration. Uh, At the turn of the last century, people were using uh, agents like dinitrophenol, which is an uncoupling agent, and and thyroid hormone. And of course, these drugs were associated with uh, marked toxicity. Um, So, you know, really for over 100 years, we've had some issues with the agents used for the treatment of obesity and for weight loss. Uh, More recently, uh, the biggest agents that have fallen by the wayside have been fenfluramine and dexfenfluramine, which were generally co-prescribed as fenfen. And these were withdrawn in 1997 because uh, they were associated with cardiac valvulopathy and pulmonary hypertension. Unfortunately, they, they were actually quite efficacious with a lot of people losing uh, 8 to 10% of their body weight, which, which actually is quite a, a good response in terms of weight loss, but, but the agents are now uh, not used uh, any longer and no longer on the market. Uh, they were serotonin receptor agonists. Um, there were a couple other prominent agents. One was an endocannabinoid receptor antagonist called Rimonabent, and that was withdrawn in 2009 because it was associated with depression and suicidal ideation. And then most recently, uh, Cybutramine, which was one of the most commonly prescribed anti-obesity drugs ever, uh, that one was withdrawn in 2010 because of an increased uh, risk of cardiovascular events in a prominent study published in the New England Journal. And so now we really only have uh, one agent available across the world, that's Orlistat, and then a couple of new agents, which we're going to discuss today, are available in certain countries, but not not widely available yet. Mm. So yes, those three agents are Orlistat, as you said, and then Fenteramin, and then Locaserin. So uh, let's go through those in order. If we start with Orlistat, um, how does that work? What's its mechanism of action? So Orlistat is an inhibitor of uh, lipases in the gut, so gastric and pancreatic lipase. And really uh, what it's doing is it's sitting in the gut preventing fat absorption and then the subsequent caloric uh, intake reduction that that results from that is thought to be related to the weight loss. Mm. And how effective is it? Not very effective. Um, So it's been on the market since 1999 and as half strength it's actually also available over the counter. Uh, and a meta-analysis we did that uh, was published in the BMJ uh, a few years ago uh, showed that uh, weight was reduced by about uh, 2.9 kilograms on average. And on average, these individuals were about 100 kilograms, so it's about 2.9 or so percent weight loss. 
And this was associated with very small improvements in cardiovascular risk factors. So really overall, not, not a huge weight reduction. Um, I should mention that uh, all of these drugs, including Orlistat, should be used in conjunction with uh, lifestyle modification. And, and then <clears throat> combined, you're, you are looking at uh, roughly 5% to 7% weight loss uh, on average when you combine lifestyle modification with, with, the, with the Orlistat. Right, okay. Um, and obviously there are drawbacks to preventing um, fat metabolism and absorption. So, um, so what's the, some of the problems with Orlistat? So Orlistat really, it's minimally absorbed, um, and so the major side effect relates to these gastrointestinal adverse effects like steatorrhea, abdominal distension. Two to eight percent of individuals can experience fecal incontinence. So really, those are those are the major adverse effects. Uh, can interfere with fat soluble vitamin absorption. Uh, so A, D, E, and K might might be affected, and some fat-soluble uh, medications could be affected. So you should space the medication out two to four hours apart from from any agent that potentially might be affected. Okay. Um, so now let's move on to these newer agents. If we start with um, phentermine, uh, where is that available? So phentermine and uh, topiramate is a combined medication. So phentermine itself has been available since 1959, and I, I believe it's available in many countries in the world. It's actually one of the older agents for obesity pharmacotherapy. Uh, it is the most commonly prescribed anti-obesity drug in the U.S. right now, um, but it's only approved for short-term use, and it's an FDA Schedule IV drug, which which means that... Um, you know the longer-term use of phentermine monotherapy is is not uh, has not been uh, re- um, approved. Um, phentermine and extended release topiramate is the uh, newer agent on the scene, and, and that's a combination product uh, um, that's uh, uh, got a trade name of uh, Cusimia. And uh, this this medication uh, was recently approved by the Food and Drug Administration in the U.S. Uh, in 2012. Uh, it it might be available in some other countries in the world, but to to date, it's not available in in Europe. It's not been approved by the Europe European Medicine Association uh, agency, and um, uh, I'm not sure it will be approved until there are some good post-marketing surveillance data that come out of the U.S. in the next few years. Okay. Um, and what's the mechanism of action um, of the phentermine and the topiramate? Right. So uh, phentermine itself is an amphetamine analog. Um, so it's actually similar to cybutramine, the one I mentioned earlier that uh, has been pulled so it enhances satiety by uh, increasing noradrenaline levels or norepinephrine levels in the hypothalamus. Uh, topiramate, uh, which it's coupled with, has actually been used for epilepsy and migraine prophylaxis previously, uh, and uh, investigators noted weight loss in the studies, uh, in the neurologic uh, indication studies. And it, it, we don't know how it works, so whenever we don't know how something works, people have multiple theories. Uh, Topiramate is thought to decrease directly food intake, decrease uh, um, lipid formation, increase thermogenesis, improve insulin sensitivity, 
Uh, and so these are putative uh, mechanisms, but we're not certain what the true one is. Sure, there's a very wide range of, of ways it could work there. Exactly. For the, for the new combined therapy, how effective is that? So fentermine and extended release to pyramid is, is pretty effective. Uh, it's in the order of what we used to see with fenfen. So that is uh, something that was quite pleasing to see. Um, the drug itself uh, appears to reduce weight by about 8 to 10 kilograms. And uh, this weight reduction has been associated with reasonable improvements in cardiovascular risk factors. For example, systolic blood pressure is reduced by approximately 3.8 millimeters uh, on average. And so I think the effective efficacy uh, of the drug seems um, to be higher than agents that have previously been approved. And so it remains to be seen whether or not that translates into morbidity, mortality, endpoint reduction. Because it's quite new, so so there hasn't been that sort of population uh, level data coming out yet. Exactly. Um, and uh, are there any known side effects um, of of either of these? Right. So there are uh, the the major uh, issue with uh, these medications is, uh, as one can imagine, they are um, stimulants of the CNS, and so. Uh, individuals may uh, experience uh, side effects like paresthesias, nausea, dizziness, constipation, dry mouth, uh, certain neuropsychiatric-related adverse effects like depression and anxiety, as well as insomnia, uh, were more common in individuals uh, receiving them in the clinical trials that have been done to date. Um, The uh, heart rate may increase slightly, Uh, But this was felt to not be a major concern by the FDA. I think the EMA had some concerns about it, and that was part of the reason why the drug was not approved in Europe, pending further further, uh, data. Uh, But the biggest issue overall is the issue of topiramate uh, and the fact that it is a teratogen. And so that has to be very carefully monitored um, because, as you can imagine, a lot of uh, anti-obesity drug uses is by women of childbearing age. And so a risk mitigation strategy needs to be very carefully followed in the case of tupiramate and fentermine extended release tupiramate, the combination product. Of course. Now, um, the last one that you talked about in your review is uh, locaserin. So um, how does that one work? So locaserin is is an agonist of serotonin 2C receptors, and the 2C is important because collateral damage by hitting 2A and 2B, which we'll discuss in a minute, has been a theoretical concern. Uh, But the serotonin 2C receptors uh, work in the hypothalamus, and uh, they stimulate uh, a pathway called the central melanocortin pathway, and this uh, reduces uh, food intake and increases satiety. And that's thought to be the mechanism of action of the drug. Mm. And do we have any data about um, effectiveness? Yeah, so locaserin is mildly effective. Uh, The weight reductions are in the order of what one sees with Orlistat, uh, 2.9 to uh, 3.6 kilograms. 
2.9 to 3.6 kilograms uh, higher in locasrin-treated patients compared to those treated with placebo, and some association with improvements in blood blood pressure and cholesterol. But the improvements have been quite mild. For example, about a millimeter reduction in in blood pressure is all all that you will get. Now, I should also take this opportunity to mention that there's been no direct comparison in a head-to-head trial of these different agents. So I'm making indirect comparisons uh, when when I talk about the efficacy of the drugs. And to some extent, the population that's been enrolled will affect the efficacy. So it could be that the efficacy of um, uh, fentermine extended release to pyramid is not that much greater than uh, locasrin. We don't know until a head-to-head trial has been done. Of course. Um, and finally, uh, when we talk about drugs, what, um, what are the, the drawbacks of locasrin? So the most common side effects of uh, locasrin are a headache, uh, upper respiratory tract infection, dizziness, dizzy, dizziness, nausea, constipation, dry mouth. Um, but I should mention that the, the drug was actually very well tolerated. Uh, the problem, I guess, if there is going to be, if one is going to point to a problem, is that um, that the drug is not not does not appear to be hugely efficacious and. And I think that's been part of the reason why the EMA was really kind of underwhelmed in terms of approving it. There were some other issues, uh, but they haven't been proven to be an issue in humans. Uh, First, uh, there were some concerns about mammary and brain tumors in rats, but these findings were not replicated in other animal model studies, and the risk in humans was judged by the FDA to be low. Uh, The other big issue is the serotonin 2A and 2B receptor stimulation, which uh, which have been associated with number one neuropsychiatric side effects and number two cardiac valvulopathy, and so post marketing surveillance, especially for the cardiac valvulopathy issue, is going to be of paramount importance. And the uh, the phase three slash four studies that are looking at hard endpoints now, they will have cardiac echo sub studies. And um, and this will be an important issue to look at. Uh, there have been three large studies done to date, and those have not as- been associated with an increased risk of cardiac valvulopathy. Okay. So all in all, it's it's um it's not a great picture there. There are limited reductions in weight, and not necessarily then uh, decreases on morbidity or mortality have not yet been seen. And the side effect profiles of these drugs are, are fairly wide and, and you know, fairly serious, um, especially when we talk about teratogens. So in the, your article, there's a case scenario, um, a severely obese 28-year-old woman whose BMI is um, 37.9 with type 2 diabetes, controlled hypertension, sleep apnea she wants to lose weight um but she doesn't want to consider bariatric surgery um and so you're talking to her about drug treatments take us through that what would you say to a patient in that situation right so it's a tough situation and a very common situation and i'd be remiss by not mentioning that probably the best treatment for her if one goes by the published literature is surgery, um, but in this case, not interested 
And I think bears mentioning that in many, many cases, especially in a country like Canada where I work, uh, over 99% of people, even if they are interested in surgery, may not be able to access it because the slots are so are so um, scarce. I think in this individual, first of all, the cornerstone is always lifestyle modification. So that consists of diet, exercise, behavioral therapy. Behavioral therapy consists of things like goal setting, um, daily monitoring or weekly monitoring with weights, um, uh, um, with measuring weight. Uh, um, things like food journaling help uh, a fair number of people trying to address root barriers and causes of, of weight uh, emotional eating if that's present night eating is often a problem so there are a lot of components of behavioral therapy and i would venture to say perhaps that it's not really very well done out there in primary or or specialty care physicians are generally not experts in this area beyond that uh, i think you you use the drugs if the patient is interested and you you do have to have a good discussion with them about um, the potential adverse effects and really underscore the fact that we don't have morbidity mortality data. I think the other thing that physicians should understand is that if you are going to use a drug and it works, you really should continue the drug because once you stop the drug, the weight that was lost will come back. And you should also uh, keep a close eye on the on the uh, cardiovascular parameters because those that presumably are going to benefit the most are the ones that have uh, major improvements in these parameters, and the the average weight losses and the average in improvements in cardiovascular risk factor parameters are only average. So there will be individuals that will will have uh, more profound effects, and those are the people you want to watch out for, and perhaps consider keeping on the drug. Uh, beyond that, I think you know, as with any drug, you you discuss the risks and benefits, and if the patient is interested and they understand these risks and benefits then I think it is reasonable to try the drugs. And this really gets back to the fact that we don't have great treatments. And so, yes, the checkered past has to be taken into account. And yes, the lack of morbidity mortality data do need to be appreciated. But one also has to balance that against um, the fact that many people are very desperate to try to lose weight. And, and some people can can benefit from these drugs in terms of weight loss and should be monitored thereafter for improvements in other parameters and and toxicity. I should also mention that uh, there has been a paradigm shift in the field over the last um, decade or two, and we really are trying to get get individuals to try the drugs and then stop them if they're not working. I mean, it didn't used to be heavily underscored that individuals who start the drug and are monitored and don't have much benefit uh, should have the drug stop. But I think that's really now very highly underscored. And these these drugs are no exception. One should should monitor individuals for at least five percent weight loss after three to six months. And and uh, if they are not achieving that threshold, I think you stop the drug. So you end up treating only those individuals who are uh, uh, reasonable responders. Um, I would even venture to say that 5% is too low, uh, but 5% has been the threshold that has traditionally been set. I would like to see at least 10%, and so a subset of individuals, approximately 20 to 40%, will achieve 
uh, weight loss around that amount, and those are the individuals that you will consider longer-term treatment in. Is there an order you would try the drugs in? Is it very much down to an individual conversation between you and the patient about you know, side effect profiles, those kind of things? Or, or would you have a sort of first-line drug? Yeah, in the absence of head-to-head data, it's very difficult to pick a first line. Uh, one could point to the fact indirectly that the fentermine extended release to pyramid combination appears to be associated with approximately double the amount of weight loss of the other two agents, recognizing that this is an indirect comparison. I can I can see most patients, when you present the data to them, will be most interested in the one that is associated with the greatest amount of weight loss. So by default, I would assume that the vast majority of people will be trying that one first. Uh, but other than that, I think, you know, in the absence of compelling data to, to pick one, either head-to-head data or mortality, morbidity data for one of the agents, which would elevate it above all the rest, I think then that you really, you can pick any of them. Um, the uh, pregnancy issue in this case is also important to consider, and so you might shy away from fentermine to pyramid at first, uh, just because you know you do have to monitor very carefully for for um, the pregnancy issue. On the other hand, you know as long as you do the monitoring, I think uh, it's reasonable to use use the drug. So so overall, probably based on efficacy, you could try fentermine extended release to pyramid first recognizing that is an indirect comparison. Great. Um, so just to, to summarize, data tells us that surgery is uh, most effective um, for weight loss, but if that's uh, not possible or the patient does want to consider that, um, the therapeutics agents, uh, there is some evidence uh, for um, efficacy uh, and also for reductions in morbidity and mortality, but it's not yet totally clear and your advice would be try patients on a drug to see if they achieve weight loss and if they don't then try another one or or abandon that route yeah i think that's the bottom line it's uh, mostly a trial and error issue and uh, kind of a sad state of affairs overall in the sense that um even we've been trying to treat this problem for over a century and we're still uh, not in a, not in great shape in terms of the types of therapies we can offer. And one last point I should end on, there is one thing we did not discuss in the article that does bear mentioning for the case, and that is uh, protein-sparing low-calorie liquid diets. Um, there are a number of them out there in the world. These are probably in between in terms of effectiveness uh, between surgery and um, diet exercise slash drug therapy. And so... So that is another option for individuals to consider. Okay, thank you. We've been talking to Dr. Raj Padwal, who's from the University of Alberta, and his therapeutics article, Pharmacotherapy for Weight Loss, is now available on bmj.com.